Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Of the millions of people working in STEM fields in the U.S., only 9% are Black. That's according to the Pew Research Center, and those numbers have stayed the same since 2016. How can efforts around inclusivity in these fields go farther? Dr. Naima Harris is an environmental scientist, and she has studied the increasing importance of Blackology. She says Blackologists are not simply scholars that are Black but are scholars who deliberately leverage and intersect Blackness into advancing knowledge production. Dr. Harris will join us to discuss how this approach is applied to environmental science, as well as so many other disciplines. But first, Dr. Ijoma Apawa wants young Black women to feel welcomed and represented in her field of public health, all the while exploring the ways public health research and resources can better serve them. She joins us now. Welcome, Dr. Apawa, to the show today. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. We're very excited for you to be here as well. And what Mm -hmm. efforts are there to increase inclusivity in STEM where you live? You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Opara, before we get into the many, many different impactful projects that you're working on, kind of want to rewind a bit and talk about a profile of you that was written by Yale Daily News It tells us that you grew up wanting to be everything, a lawyer, a physician, and that you were an advocate from childhood with a love of defending and debating people. Can you give us a snapshot of your early life in Jersey City, New Jersey? Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I was one of those people that wanted to be everything. I wanted to, in in addition to wanting to be a physician and lawyer, I also wanted to be an astronaut. I also wanted to be an engineer, a nurse. It was just something that I just was interested in so many different fields, but didn't really have a direction of where I wanted to go. And looking back on my life, I'm actually, I don't regret any of that. And I'm actually grateful that I had the opportunity to explore so many things. Um, With my Upbringing in Jersey City, uh, for for some people who don't know much about um, Jersey City, New Jersey, I did live in a predominantly Black area, um, predominantly Black and urban area of Jersey City. Jersey City looks very different right now. Um, and I was raised by two, you know, Nigerian immigrant parents whom I, you know, love and adore, but just acknowledging some of the the issues or some of the discrepancies that American-born children like myself have with immigrant parents, you know, they were still trying to figure out how to adjust and immerse themselves in American culture um, and trying to figure out how to support me as best as they can while also supporting themselves and their families back home. Um, But for my parents' um, story, their story and their experiences is really what impacts the person you see today and why I want to be an advocate um, specifically around health disparities and impact Black um, people. Um, my parents both passed away at young ages. My mom was 46. She died from complications from diabetes. And my dad died at 57 um, from a heart attack. But he also 
lived with uh, diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Um, and just, you know, my earliest, um, my earliest memory as a child was my mom going back and forth into the hospital, was my mom, you know, being home and, you know, confiding in my father that she didn't feel welcomed in hospitals. She didn't really understand what the doctors were saying. She didn't really feel like she was getting proper care um, within the healthcare system. But then she never, you know, had the words or the support to actually challenge, you know, the physicians and the med- her medical um, team that was caring for her. And because of that, it just led to um, her um, diabetes is kind of like spiraling out of control. It left her blind. It left her kidneys being completely failed and she had to go on dialysis. Um, it left her, <clears throat> some of her toes amputated and she was paralyzed up until the moment that she died, um, you know, in front of me and my dad when I was 16 years old. So, you know, because of her experiences and then because of also my father's experiences with the healthcare system that left him dead at a young age, um, I knew that I couldn't, I ha- I, in order for me to survive in this country, especially as a Black person, I had to speak up. You know, we all have to speak up. Um, you know, our healthcare system, while there are some strengths with our healthcare system, there are some disadvantages that are compounded by race, socioeconomic status, and even, you know, we could even also add immigrant status as well, too. Um, so being an advocate was something that I knew that I had to do even as a young child, and I'm doing it now um, in different ways. But, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm such an outspoken person. Um, in the article, I talked about how my mom was the complete opposite of me. So, like, she was very timid, very quiet, um, didn't want to cause too much trouble. I'm not like that. You know, I'm someone that I come into a room and if I notice something that's not, you know, um, that I, I notice something that's not being done well or someone's being taken advantage of or if I feel I'm being taken advantage of, I speak up. You know, I I don't take my life for granted and I don't take <clears throat> I don't take for granted the education that I have that has allowed me to be able to speak up. And I know that not everyone listening today has that opportunity to speak up. And this is the issue, right? We we need to be able to have these really difficult conversations with our healthcare providers so that we don't have instances like my parents happen again. Well, I'm always very inspired by stories like yourself, which is, you know, it's, it's, a sad story, but also very uplifting at the same time, I find. And I hope this resonates with with many because we just had a conversation recently with with other people of color and they said something very similar, that there was no language for them to express their concerns or their fears or just misunderstandings. And I want to share that NPR recently also cited a Georgetown University study that found black Americans are seven times more likely to have diabetes and more than twice as likely to die from heart disease as their white neighbors. And from your own very personal experience, and it's it was so poignant for you to to be inspired by that. How did you go about researching more about your own parents' experiences and taking that into you know your next steps into your future? Yeah, so I I knew just based off of my parents' experiences that I wanted to do something in healthcare. Right, I didn't know what public health was when I was an undergrad, so I you know I majored in psychology. Um, but I knew I majored in psychology and I knew that I wanted to do something related to physical health, mental health, but I just wasn't sure which path, you know, that was. And it's one of the reasons why 
Um, I'm trying to get high school kids to kind of understand what public health is, because like you mentioned, you know, especially black kids, as well as like you mentioned, black Americans and black people overall in the United States are going to have um, much worse health outcomes. And I think that if we um, are encouraging and um, opening up the pipeline for black researchers to understand what the field of public health is, and how they could work with other fields to be able to um, develop solutions um, to to rid us of these um, disparities that are impacting our communities. So just as I, you know, I learned about public health actually through a couple of friends um, when I was an undergrad, and I was like, oh, this sounds like a pretty good, pretty cool field. So I applied. I applied to public health at the same time that I was applying to law school. And I ended up choosing the public health field. And I'm very grateful that I, I did. So I ended up enrolling in a master's of public health program. And it was within that program that I started to realize, like, oh, my goodness, like these these are some of the issues that my parents had. And it's not normal for a 46 year old woman to have all these health complications, you know, at such a young age, you know. So I started I started being exposed to what health disparities are, what are racial health disparities, um, how does heart disease present in a black person over, you know, compared to a white person, how does stress and racism and sexism and, you know, and, and immigrant status and, you know, how does all of that intersect to create a much more difficult experience in the healthcare system? So I started to learn this in public health. And the more that I was, you know, working with mentors and working with um, other researchers in the field, I now started to realize like, okay, my parents' experiences um, were impacted most likely by racism in the healthcare system. And they could have been avoided if they knew how to navigate it, you know? Um, and I, I say that for me, one of the things that I'm grateful for is that I have friends and colleagues who are physicians. So every time I go to the doctor, I'm always like, re- like reaching out to them saying, hey, my doctor said this, my doctor said that. What do you think about this system? Blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I'm grateful for that because my mom didn't have that. My dad didn't have that. And I can't tell you how many times having those conversations with my friends or my mentors who are in that field, how that has, I believe, like literally saved my life and changed my trajectory, you know, changed the whole trajectory. Uh, because sometimes we just don't have the words to communicate to our doctors how, how we're what we're feeling um, too. So it it, it is a, a helpful a helpful thing. But I also acknowledge that not everybody, actually a majority of the country, don't have that access. You know, and it, and it's not fair. We shouldn't have to have that access to having a friend or a sister or you know or someone in our family be a physician to know that we're going to be cared for. Everyone you know, regardless of our of race, should be treated equally um, and with respect and dignity if they're ent- when they're entering the hospital system. So I think many people out there who are listening now might find it to be a, an amazing thing that you found public health to be super cool. And yeah. which is why we're having this conversation today. <laughs> and, um, and you mentioning, you know, there's so much intersection within this field and you had mentors and now you are mentoring others and inspiring others to get into this into this field. Your parents' death obviously had a huge mark um, on you, but your father's death really had a pivotal moment in your life. How did he inspire you to not just pursue a career in public health, but also to weave uh, mentorship into the work that you do. 
You know, one of the things one of the things that my father said repeatedly to me when I would ask him, like, Dad, what do you want me to do when I um, when I grow up? You know, and he would tell me, do whatever you want. You know, think about what you're really good at. Think about what you're passionate about, just as long as you're the best at it, just as long as you're making an impact in the world. That's all I care about. So he was like, you know, if you want to be a physician, if you want to be a, 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 a English teacher, if you want to be an artist, I don't care, you know, do what, you know, do whatever um, it you, you, you feel true to, or you're passionate about, but just be the best at it. And I, and I'll be honest with you. I used to annoy me when he used to say that because I didn't know what he meant. I'm like, dad, just tell me that you want me to be an engineer. Just tell me that you want me to be a physician. Cause I think I back then as a child and, you know, growing in as a teenager into a young adult, I felt like I lacked direction and I just wanted um, my father to just give me the, an, an easy way out, you know, but as I, as I've gotten older and I look back on it, his words ring true to me. And I, and I'm so thankful. I'm thankful to God. I'm just grateful that he uh, gave me that freedom to really follow my passion, you know, to, and I, and I feel like where I am today in my career, I am so passionate about the work that I do with young black girls. I'm so passionate about the work that I do um, with trying to open up doors for, you know, underrepresented students in the field of public health and in other fields too. I'm also a social worker um, as well, you know, too. And I could talk a little bit about, about how I even pivoted to social work in a second, but I'm so grateful and I'm passionate about it. And my dad was right. You know, when you're passionate about something, you are going to do such great work because you genuinely care about the outcomes. You genuinely care about, you know, the population that you're focusing on or the field that you're focusing on. It's not going to feel like work. This is going to really feel like your mission, um, your purpose of life in life. So I, you know, so I, I do thank him for that. And I wish that, you know, he was alive to see how his words inspired, you know, me, but, you know, I eventually as a Christian, I hope that I'll see him eventually later on, you know, later on and stuff, but I am, I do try to live on, um, to have his legacy live on through me. Well, and with that legacy too, you're showing your passion to younger black kids. You're helping them attain that freedom that you were able to get as a, as a young kid. So can you tell us about the Dreamer Girls Project and how is that inspiring younger black kids? Yeah, so the Dreaming Girls Project actually was conceptualized 13 years ago when my dad died. Um, I wanted to start something like a nonprofit or something that was catered towards Black girls. Because as a young woman, when my dad died, I was in grad school. I was actually in my um, first year of my master's of public health program. And, you know, I felt lost. I felt confused. And, you know, I, I did have a really good community of friends that supported me during that time. And I'm really grateful, you know, for them. Um, but, you know, I did feel like there weren't any resources for women like me to um, to really navigate um, this experience. And then I thought, you know, if there's no resources for me, imagine what young girls are going through, like young girls who may not have the words or the mobility to be able to identify, you know, sources of help and support. So I wanted to create this organization, you know, but then I didn't know how it was going to look like, you know, so I, but I just always had this idea of Dreamer Girls Project in my head every year. I just kept replaying it like, okay, I have to do something with Dreamer Girls Project. I have to do something with Dreamer Girls Project. So Fast forward to a few years ago when I graduated with, from my PhD, I had the opportunity to apply 
for pilot study funds. And I decided that I wanted to um, use this as an opportunity to start conceptualizing the Dreamer Girls project. Um, so I focused for first on the research arm, which focuses on developing um, a, a HIV and drug use prevention program for Black girls, uh, but specifically looking at or moving away from this disease prevention model and highlighting strengths, fostering sisterhood amongst Black girls, in addition to providing like more health education um, that are that is designed for um, for Black girls by Black girls. So that's the work that I've been doing, um, you know, since I started my career as an academic. But then, you know, I I knew that I wanted to do more. I'm like, I really want the Dreamer Girls Project to go beyond research. So I started an outreach um, initiative called Black Girls Go to Yale through the Dreamer Girls Project, where I bring Black girls to um, to Yale to do like specialized tours with me and some, um, you know, and other um, Black graduate students so that they can not only see Yale, but then also visit my lab, meet me, who's a public health, you know, professor, and kind of be inspired to understand what the field of public health looks like, you know. And um, I also want to be clear that when I when I think when I when I conceptualized Black girls go to Yale, I was specifically targeting girls that weren't even thinking about, you know, going to Yale, that didn't necessarily have those opportunities. Girls from like urban communities that I do um, I, I do a majority of my work in, um, in New Jersey, that's where I was targeting. So I'm grateful that I had community partners in um, New Jersey that worked directly with girls already. So it was so easy for them to just be like, okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, um, get all the girls together and put them, you know, put them on a chartered bus and bring them to Connecticut. And then, you know, we were able to take over. So it's, it's, was launched in the summertime of last year. And it's something that, I'm continuing to do um, every semester and it's gotten so much support already. So, and I've learned so many lessons from my first, first couple of tours. So I'm excited to now, you know, do some more this summer. You've been listening to Dr. Ijoma Para. She's an assistant professor of social and behavioral sciences at Yale University. She'll be staying with us to talk about why mentorships can be so inspiring when done right. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Nine-year-old Bobby Wilson was on the lookout for spotted lanternflies in her neighborhood. On her way to connecting, con- collecting 27 of the invasive species, a neighbor reported her to the police. The incident has sparked national outrage over racial profiling. Since then, Bobby's collection of lanternflies has been admitted into the Peabody Museum of Natural History's database, and during a ceremony in January, she was recognized as a donor scientist by the Yale School of Public Health. Here's Bobby speaking in an interview with ABC7 New York. I want to let every young boy or every young girl or even adults know that nobody can knock you off your way to success. And we all can do our our part to save the environment, just like me. The ceremony honoring Bobby was overseen by our guest this hour. We have Dr. Ijoma Opara. She is an assistant professor of social and behavioral sciences at Yale School of Public Health and an assistant clinical professor at Yale School of Nursing. Dr. Apara, can you tell us about how you heard about this incident close to your hometown in Caldwell, New Jersey, and how did you set out to arrange the ceremony for Bobby? So I came across um, Bobby's mom and her older sister, Hayden, speaking. It was a video that um, they, they were speaking at the city council about the incident of Bobby having the cops called on her for catching these lanternflies. And when I saw it, I said, oh, my goodness. I immediately was outraged, um, not only because she was a young black girl from New Jersey, but because she was doing something so heroic. You know, I'm from New Jersey and I saw those lantern flies and I was terrified of them. So to me, I'm like, oh, my goodness, a little girl developed a solution to to kill these lantern flies and someone has the guts to call the cops on her. Immediately, I just I knew that I needed to do something um, because I didn't want this young girl to be to have this negative memory attached to her scientific efforts to eradicating these lanternflies in her town. So I put out a call on Twitter. Um, I put out a call on Twitter asking my Twitter followers to help me find um, Bobby and her family. And you know, great. You know, while Twitter, I wouldn't say Twitter is doing a great job right now. I will say that my Twitter family came all together, and we were able to connect me to the mayor of the city who then connected me to Bobby's mom. Um, and I told her, I wanna invite her, her and her family to Yale. I wanna do like a, a special private tour where not only she visits my lab, but visits other labs at Yale, um, specifically um, that include black female um, scientists. Um, and, and it's funny because when I told her, when I told, when I invited her, I hadn't even organized um, the, that t- the tour yet. So I lived, but I knew that I was going to definitely bring her to to the to my lab because I wanted her to be able to um, have this like this negative memory replaced by a positive memory by just having her come to Yale. Mom was super on board, and a, a couple, and I was able to reach out to a couple of um, students at Yale and a couple of my colleagues here who are more than willing to open up their um, their labs to have um, young Bobby come in with her family and do like a nice little fun science tour. We went to see uh, my lab. Then we also went to see some mosquitoes because I figured, you know, Bobby must be interested in insects. So let's just, you know, show her that not only are people doing research on these insects, but there are Black women who look like her who are actually engaged in this type of work. So 
we were able to meet, go to the, go to a lab um, at Public Health to to see to to see insect to see mosquitoes. Then we also went to another lab um, to to see mice, and she loved she loved that lab. I was actually surprised at how much she loved that lab. You know, shout out to Doctor Kristen Carter who let who who um helped us to. Um, not only get Bobby excited about science, but also excited about mouse <laughs> and stuff. It was so it was so funny. And then we ended the tour um, at the Peabody Museum, um, and it was my first time actually at the Peabody Museum. But again, I reached out to the entomology um, division um, collector, the co the collections manager, excuse me, Dr. Lawrence Gall, told him the story of Bobby and said, you know, we would really love if we could um, just have Bobby meet. Peabody, um, you know, people and see the insect collection. And he was like, oh, absolutely. Please bring her, bring her and the family down. Um, and it was, um, and it was there that he told her, like, if you continue catching lanternflies, you can donate them to Yale Peabody. And, you know, I was blown away. I don't even think Bobby even understood how significant that was. You know, she's nine. So she didn't really understand how significant that was. But I told Bobby, I said, Bobby, listen, if you go back and catch those lanternflies and and mail them back to Yale, I'm going to have a party for you. And she was so excited. Mom was so excited. Granted, I didn't know how that party was going to look like because we never we never did that before. But I knew that I had to do something, you know, to 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 stamp this, you know, this celebration of of her, you know, now being recognized as a donor scientist. So luckily, you know, when I brought the idea to um, communications and to my department, um, chair, they were so in support of it. They loved the idea of having like a small um, private um, ceremony to honor Bobby in this way. So, you know, we invited her family, her friends, you know, they all came down and Yale Peabody was able to come down to the School of Public Health. And, you know, we were able to have this private, private ceremony um, honoring her and then launching her name in the database as like a donor, a donor scientist. And these lantern flies are just going to forever be at Yale Peabody and they're going to be forever associated with her name. So it was such a powerful, it was such a powerful day. And it hit me because I was, you know, I, I think because I was so engrossed in just making sure that the, the experience was a positive one for Bobby, that it actually got me emotional thinking, wow, like these lantern flies that, um, that had someone her neighbor called the cops on her are now like this nap. She's getting so much global attention. Um, and they're now at Yale, you know, and I'm just grateful to be a part of her story and a part of her testimony. And, you know, I, I, and this is just an example of the type of work that I do where we really need to, to understand how to highlight the strengths of black girls, how to highlight and honor their brilliance, because this is just an example of, of how far they can go once we just give them the opportunity to explore. And once again, it's a horrific story that turned into something incredibly uplifting. And I want to publicly thank Bobby for being interested in insects because mosquitoes are not my friends, I have to say. Ah, they aren't either. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. <laughs> we won't, well, maybe we won't tell her that. Um, can you, I, I want to take a moment and ask you to respond to Bobby's message. You know, we hear a lot about, you know, adults talking about, you know, you and me here talking about how inspiring this is. But we heard from her just a few minutes ago, um, which really appeals to the young scientists and all of us, how important is it for young Black kids to hear from fellow young Black kids? It's so, it's inspiring. And, you know, and this is, this is, and I, and I will be honest with you, when I um, put to organize these efforts to honor Bobby and invite her here, 
I literally had no idea that it was going to, you know, reach such a, you know, such global attention. I mean, I, I mean, Bobby has been since coming to Yale, she's been honored by the USDA. She's been honored by the governor of New Jersey. She's been honored by, you know, so many different like Princeton University, I think, honored her NJIT. She's been honored by so many, you know, by so many um, different like high level organizations. And I think this is an example um, of showing young black kids that. The world may not, you know, you, 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 the world may not respect you or they may not love you because of, you know, because of who you are, but just know that so many other people in the world do. And you have to be able to allow children to be children. And it's okay to think about creative, you know, creative ways to save the planet or, um, or, you know, or, or what, or whatever it is that they are passionate about too. It's okay to explore. Someone is going to see your story. Someone is going to see your efforts and you are going to be applauded for it. Just don't give up. Even if the world seems to be against you, just continue working hard and know that you will be recognized for your efforts. And I also call on adults, too, because, you know, the burden should not be placed on children. You know, I call on adults to be allies, to be true allies to children, especially black children. You know, um, I think what makes this story so powerful, but also horrific is that she was only she's only nine, you know, she's all a nine year old girl. And to have a nine year old girl um, child have the cops called on her. That is I don't care what what the issue was. That is a traumatic thing for a child to face, you know, and it goes into this idea that that society views ch black children as older than what they are. And as and as criminals, you know, they view black children as you can't walk down the street unless you're doing something wrong. You know, and I, I want adults to understand the impact that this can have on a young child, you know, and to, to be aware of of how they of how we're viewing black children. You know, while it's important to honor them, it's also important to view them as children and really, ch really go challenge these racist and sexist um, stereotypes that have tainted people's ideas of how black children should look like. So I, I really wanted, I really want the world to see Bobby as a hero because she is, but also remember that she's a child and she deserves to not only explore, but she deserves to be viewed as the innocent little girl that she is because she's truly super innocent. All black children are, all children are, but especially black children. It's important for the world to do whatever we can to protect them. Well, that was a very powerful message, Dr. Apara, and we only have a couple minutes left, sadly enough, but I want to mention that we're about to hear from Dr. Naima Harris, who's an acclaimed environmental scientist at Yale School of Environment, about how blackness can and should be more deliberately leveraged into advancing knowledge production in any given field, which is touched on her, on her idea of blackology. Um, what's your response to this? What kind of uh, or what is what is your response to this kind of model of inclusive thinking? I I think that just based on the experiences of black people, I do want to also acknowledge too when I use the term black, and I you know I I don't want to assume. I don't want to create this idea that black people are this monolithic group, right? You know, we come from so many different backgrounds, cultures, um, belong to so many different identities. And I think that's the true, the true beauty of blackness is being able to acknowledge our strengths, being able to acknowledge our backgrounds, our social cultural um, his histories, and how that is going to inform 
not only how we view the world, but how we conceptualize things, how we come up with ideas too, and how those ideas are going to most likely challenge the status quo because the status quo most likely has been rooted in white supremacy, you know, too. So it is an important, you know, and it's a part of the work that I do with trying to um, ex increase the pipeline of black scientists going into public health and other fields too. Um, I, I think that we need more representation of black people in general and, and a majority of fields like social work, like family science, like human development, like psychology, medicine, et cetera. Um, not only because of who we are, but because of the type of brilliance and ideas and cultural context that we can bring to solving solutions. I mean, to, to be able to solving issues, excuse me, that impact us and the world uniquely. You've been listening to Dr. Ijoma Apara. She's an assistant professor of social and behavioral sciences at Yale School of Public Health. Thank you so, so much for sharing your experiences with us here today. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, environmental scientist Dr. Naima Harris will be joining us to talk about why it's important to have representation in any field. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When we think about representation or inclusivity in any workplace or field, how meaningfully are those buzzwords really being applied? Do we stop at optics or are we actually thinking actively together about how we do our work and how that might be expanded or reshaped? These are questions that apply to many professions and fields of study. I ask that question every day as a journalist. And these questions also guide the idea of blackology, a concept examined by Dr. Naima Harris. She's a professor of wildlife and land conservation at the Yale School of Environment. She says blackology means black experts across a variety of environmental and related fields are not simply scholars that are black, but are scholars who deliberately leverage and intersect blackness into advancing knowledge production. And here to help us understand this more is Dr. Nainiyama Harris herself. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm super excited. And hopefully you can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. So Naima, jumping straight in, your research is around a wide variety of animals. You've got lions, tigers, and bears, and it's celebrated and considered as seminal. Love to hear about your earliest inklings of interest in ecology and environmental science. When did you know you wanted to study? Yeah, I'm happy to share. It's it's pretty exciting to think about this city girl from Philadelphia now being a, a wildlife biologist and professor at, at Yale University. That certainly wasn't on my radar or what I thought my career trajectory would even be. But I will say that a lot of kids grow up liking animals, whether it's dinosaurs or giraffes or some critter from an unknown distant land. It's not odd to like animals as a, as a child, whether you're from from an urban environment or, or from a rural landscape. And so for me and, and my family, nature was always viewed as this resource, right? We would pick blueberries at my grandma's property in Maryland. We would use plants as insect repellents, whether, whether it was 
rosemary or lavender or sage or using plants to heal wounds like aloe or being told to just go outside and play. <laughs> so nature was always this resource. Um, and so I literally look at nature as, as my multivitamin, which is very interesting for a vegetarian, uh, becoming a vegetarian at 11. So nature being my multivitamin means that I get lots of inspiration from it. It's my armor. It fuels me. It inspires me. It motivates me. And so it's very befuddling that my profession that I chose actually is a really toxic place. Um, I chose a profession where my participation in it is often met with disdain or resistance. And so it's really frustrating, this kind of dichotomy that exists. Well, we rather witnessed it in a different kind of story, speaking of children loving animals. What was your reaction to the story of Bobby Wilson, uh, who was collecting lanternflies and had a neighbor call call the police on her? And what did you think about the message you heard from her in the previous conversation we had? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I'm, I wasn't surprised by it, right? I was angered and, and frustrated by it. But these types of events are, are reinforced commonly that Black people in spaces, including outside in spaces, are repeatedly being challenged. And there's no age discrimination um, to that kind of treatment. And so I, I wasn't surprised by it. Um, I do love the rallying behind let's change the narrative. And that was really important to see her passion getting highlighted of something that she loved and for us to be able to celebrate it and, and elevate it. So being able to see how the narrative changed, um, I felt like it became a win very, very quickly. And you wrote in Scientific American that Philly was your first ecological classroom. Feral cats eating birds and rats, people shooting bats from their homes, and snakes being killed by lawnmowers. This is as much ecology in action as anything we witness in fields and forests. With climate change now a factor, why is undoing this misunderstanding so important around humanity's role in nature? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that tradition. Traditionally, we've had this idea of nature being some some distant, faraway land, and that maybe certain people or certain demographics had an inherent right to it, while others would, would be excluded from it. The reality is, is, is that in, ver- in urban environments in particular highlight this interface where social and ecological and economical are all coming together, um, and we're incubating these challenges. We're struggling with them. But urban spaces also represent these amazing opportunities to think about climate solutions, to think about who gets to be a participant and not just observers, right? We don't get to just observe nature or observe climate change happening to us. We get to be interveners. We get to be advocates. We get to be scientists and poets and everything else um, across the sun and participating in what does it mean to combat some of these challenges, these environmental challenges that all of us are facing, but that oftentimes marginalized and those economic disadvantaged groups disproportionately face. And so urban environments in particular represent a really amazing, amazing classroom and an amazing opportunity to think about what does the next 
generation look like? Who gets to be participated? Whose voices get to be elevated in a collective struggle? Well, you mentioned that this is an area that you found to be very toxic, despite your very natural idea of viewing nature as your multivitamin and with so many resources. Can you talk about the biases in the field that you have felt and observed so far? Yeah, and I think it it connects back to some of the previous comments that were made around representation, right? Being able to see yourself matters in a space. It gets you to to imagine different versions of self through exposure. But I entered a field as a wildlife biologist, a field that was already whitewashed. So I didn't see examples um, in the classroom with, with my instructors primarily. I also didn't see examples in the literature or in the content that was being taught to me. Um, I didn't learn stories about Dr. Charles Turner and his contributions to thinking about insect communication and vision and uh, mental memory that insects have in navigating their environments. Or uh, Dr. Gladys West, an amazing mathematician that was a part of developing the GPS technology that we're all using, right? These are amazing African-American hidden figures, if you will, that I didn't get exposed to. So that bias that we're talking about um, manifests in lots of different ways, including exclusion, who gets to participate, who gets to generate knowledge, who gets to teach that knowledge, but also erasure, right? The contributions that Black scholars have made across disciplines are not being embedded into our curriculum, are not being embedded into the scientific culture of, of knowing, and that's problematic. Well, and clearly scientific culture is so wide. You know, we're here talking about nature. You're a wildlife biologist. And we have a we spoke earlier about a young a young child who loves insects. And there's also been a push to increase inclusivity for black people in astronomy for this exact reason. Um, and you speaking of being close to nature because there's such a profound connection to the night sky and its constellations during enslavement. Can you talk about movements like this, how important it is for it to be out there and for us to learn about it? Yeah, the fact that we can acknowledge that Blackness has been this hidden syntax that we often have to navigate our fields in a very fractured or uh, compartmentalized way, right? I don't get to step into my field with the fullness of who I am, of being a vegetarian, of being a city girl, of being a person that loves hiking and spas and that's a Christian. I don't get to enter in the space with the fullness of of who I am. That often doesn't get celebrated. Instead, there's a very specific defined narrative of what a scientist looks like, what we, how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to speak, and these social kind of constraints that's put on us. But these kinds of movements, whether it's in astronomy, or public health or wildlife biology, we are unapologetically operating in fullness. And this emotes confidence and safety while also promoting innovation and broadening our impact. So it's a really exciting time for for everyone to embrace the fullness of, of their identity because it really is transformational. It really is empowering. And it really is going to secure a sustainable future in terms of thinking about environmental issues, 
but it's also gonna lead to really cool innovations that we don't even know about yet. And it's it's so powerful to hear this today, especially after the conversations we've been having. And we're talking about you know us learning about the movements, us learning about history. Um, but you also mentioned that your work as Blackologists must be interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary in order for it to be effective. Can you touch a little bit about how the idea of Blackology can really apply to any and all fields? Yeah, so instead of looking at the traditional or historic narrative where society is built on principles of exclusion and exploitation, where racism, frankly, was advantageous, right? Societies and economies and universities were were built on slave labor, for example, right? So it was advantageous. And so entering a space where we can change the narrative about what does it mean to to be Black while doing science or Black while doing anything, we can now look at our Blackness not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity, right? It's no longer a barrier, but it's a benefit. So embracing the fullness of what it means, the identities, the cultural narratives, the cultural history that comes from our identity, that comes from the power of Blackness, embedding that into the work that we're doing across professions leads will lead to some pretty phenomenal outcomes um, and also ha- happier people. <laughs> and we know, you know, that happier people get to be healthier people and that reduces crime and can reduce pollution and all these cascading effects of making society happier, perhaps, um, because we don't have to operate with with this kind of fractured perspective. I don't always have to have this armor on, right? I can let down my hair if you like, um, and just be me operating in the space. Um, Imagine what that would feel like if everyone could do that. I think think it would be amazing. I think we are all imagining that right now and have tears in our eyes, really. And, and you you know, you spoke about opportunities and breaking barriers and, and seeing people who look like yourself in these fields. Can you talk about why is it important, Naima, for you to be involved in mentorship? And especially that's something that we were talking about in the previous conversations as well, is for young children to see uh, people who look like them in these fields. Yeah, I've I've engaged in a number of different kind of outreach activities, and I am perplexed by the frequency or the pervasiveness of young kids in particular telling me that I don't look like a scientist. I don't look like a biologist. And that literally breaks my heart. Um, And so having more representation and seeing, seeing people, seeing Black women, seeing Black scholars in positions of power and not positions of, of, of service necessarily or servitude um, sparks an opportunity of imagination, right? Where could I be, right? Who could I be? That's an amazing, empowering freedom that all kids should be able to have and not be constrained by, well, there's only these few professions or this is what you have access to. That's not true. And so that representation matters a lot just for inspiring and imagining different versions of self. I also am very deliberate when I do community events and engagement opportunities that I'm actually not trying to convert everyone into an ologist. Not everyone is going to study science or or even any of the STEM fields, but the reality is that every individual has an environmental impact. 
we all have an ecological footprint. And so it means that the, the lawyer or the artist or the psychologist, where are they getting their food from? How do they think about electric cars or, or, the, or power usage? How do they think about where their clothes are coming from or what they're made out of? All of those decisions that everyday people are making has an environmental impact. And so it's really important that we are not working in these silos and thinking we just have to convert everyone into scientists. No, everyone to be conscious about the impact that they have on the environment and recognize the connection between systems, that what we do here impacts someone else over there or will impact us a year or two years or five years later. Those connections matter a lot. I will never be based on our behavior and our choices. And I was going to say, I will never be not amazed at all the connections between everything you just said. And unfortunately, we only have about a minute left. But I do want to ask now, what are you working on now? What's coming up next? Oh, my goodness. We don't have a, I don't have enough time in a minute. But I will say really excited about work that we're doing in urban environments, working in Detroit and Philadelphia, thinking about how animals move throughout the space and the impact that it has on disease transmission and um, monitoring environmental contaminants and pollution. We have projects on jaguars in Mexico and tigers in India and lions in West Africa, thinking about their ecology, their movement, human wildlife conflict. Uh, definitely stay tuned because we're doing some really amazing wildlife research in, in my applied wildlife ecology lab in the School of the Environment at Yale University. Well, you've been listening to Dr. Naima Harris, whom we will absolutely have come back. She's a professor of wildlife and land conservation at the Yale School of Environment. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.